Surprises in the experts' drafts? We'll ask Ray Murphy from BaseballHQ.com next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Thursday, the 15th of February, 2018. It's show number one of the 2018 fantasy baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, and we have a great opening show for you. Ray Murphy from BaseballHQ.com, the co-general manager and a columnist at the site. We'll talk about his two experts leagues drafts, as well as the first pitch forums coming up and his guys for nabbing and slabbing in 2018. Yeah, we'll explain that when we get to it. As well, we'll have our first installment of the Cheat Sheet with BaseballHQ.com analyst Greg Fishwick looking at starting pitchers. It's another terrific show, great way to start the season. Hey, what do you say? Pitchers, catchers, and podcasts. We gotta talk some baseball. And to start our show a little bit different this year, we're going to have our feature guest interview and couldn't have anybody better than Ray Murphy, the co-general manager of BaseballHQ.com. Ray, welcome to Baseball HQ Radio, show number one for the 2018 fantasy baseball season. Bat and lead off. I love it, Patrick. Let's get started with the uh, FSTA draft. Earlier this year, you and your co-general manager, Brent Hershey at BaseballHQ.com, drafted in the kickoff experts league, I guess we could call it, the Fantasy Sports Trade Association. It's a 14-team mixed 5x5 snake redraft league. Well, that's a mouthful. An interesting wrinkle they had this year was that they split the draft into two different sessions. There was an eight-round slow draft and then a 10-day break, and then you guys finished up with rounds 9 through 18 at the FSTA conference. Before we talk about the details of the draft, Ray, how did that mid-draft break affect your approach to the draft? You know, I think it really just sort of gave us a, a sort of an opportunity to reassess. Some, one, of the, one of the participants in the draft, or maybe somebody who was following it, called the first phase almost like the keeper phase of a of a uh, dynasty league or a, a, you know, a keeper league where the first eight rounds were like everybody naming their keepers and it it did sort of feel that way so in that sense the model wasn't completely foreign but it was interesting in the sense that even in those you know the, the rules were a little uh on the fly shall we say so uh we knew we were doing a few rounds in advance of the draft just to make it try to fit into the uh the, the, the window of time we had at the conference, but, you know, first it was going to be five rounds, and then it was going to be six rounds, and, the, you know, we're sitting here like, oh, okay, we have to make another pick? What are we going to do? And then, but by the time we got to eight, like you said, we had that 10-day break or so, and it was, that was good because Brent and I were working together on the initial portion, but then Brent went to the conference and I didn't, but we had ample opportunity in those 10 days to make sure we agreed on a plan and knew what we were doing, especially for the first few few picks out of the break. It worked out pretty well that we were pretty heavily focused in the live portion on just collecting hitters and often hitters with the same profile. So it wasn't a uh, – we didn't have to give Brent a very complicated set of instructions. You mentioned uh, looking for hitters with the same profile. What was the profile? So when we started up top um, – you know, we, we opened a draft with Charlie Blackman and Francisco Lindor, who are both uh, you know pretty well-rounded five-category hitters, and that was pretty intentional. We the approach here was to you know we weren't looking to get uh, the specialist in either power or speed. We weren't looking for 
Stanton or Judge or Gordon or Hamilton for stolen bases. We were really looking to pick up, you know, home runs 25 at a time and stolen bases 15 to 20 at a time. Uh, and we had done a pretty decent job of that in the early stages. So we were, And we had also built a nice batting average base, which I always like to do in the early parts of these straight drafts. So Brent sort of had license to chase power and, to some extent, speed and trade off batting average to get it. So we collected a, got a lot of, you know, Matt Chapman and Sh- Scott Shebler types and Mike Zanino and, uh, you know, the kind of guys you, you would think of if you don't care about batting average but want, but want to accumulate some counting stats. Yeah, I was thinking of Joey Gallo in, in particular as the, the kind of guy that everybody targets if they have a, a batting average cushion and nobody targets if they don't. Yeah, we were absolutely targeting Gallo. We didn't get him, but yeah, that was that's exactly the thought process. Uh, last year, uh, or in a past year, I think it was last year, you guys uh, grabbed Billy Hamilton in round four in a uh, in an effort to use the specialist approach to cover your stolen base needs. Uh, why did you decide this year that uh, you wanted to go this balanced route to, instead of the specialist route? Well, one of the things about it is, you know, in, in these leagues, you know, I. I I want to make sure I sort of try both approaches, especially in drafts that are this early. So in this one, we sort of decided to go with the uh, the well-rounded generalists, and I'm sure in some other drafts down the road, I in fact, I already have tried this, the specialist approach. Uh, but the other thing was, you know, there's an element, especially in a draft that happens in, you know, this draft started on like New Year's Day with a slow draft portion or something like that. And some of that was to, you know, get a sense of, how everyone else is reading the marketplace and what the other drafters are doing in terms of the changing landscape of the game. And I wanted to see how people approached Gordon and Hamilton and Trey Turner. I mean, you can always see where they're going in the ADPs, but watch, you know, watching how other people chase those guys and then trying to figure out for myself sort of how the building counting stats a chunk at a time without the specialists, how that plays out into a roster. We're, we're sort of the, you know, this was a bit of a laboratory, and that was sort of the uh, the one side of the experiment that I decided to play out in this one. You also went uh, starting pitcher, starting pitcher in rounds three and four. I don't know, uh, was it Jacob deGrom, I think, and Carlos Carrasco. How much of that was a plan, and how much of it was a response to a big string of top starters going in the early rounds? Yeah, it was... Wasn't necessarily a plan. We were going to go with at least one starter early. I don't know that we were planning to do back to back in three or four. But what happened was kind of weird. We were torn hard between Carrasco and Degrom with the round three pick, and we were fairly close to the middle of the snake. There were I think ten picks between our round three and our round four. So we were torn between the two of them. We picked Degrom, and then while we were waiting ten picks for our next round pick, nine straight hitters went. Um, so when Carrasco sort of just sat there after we were strongly considering him the previous turn, we kind of said, yeah, okay, let's do this. Let's, let's bang the two starting pitchers. And, you know, that's, as I wrote about it in a subsequent article, that's a little uncomfortable for, you know, the baseball HQ community in terms of the, uh, you know, being born and raised on the Liba plan sort of thing where we want to, you know, accumulate a bunch of hitting early and then worry about the pitching later. Uh, but I did a study after this draft, actually, to see how common this was. I collected a dozen or so uh, draft boards from this spring and and charted out where everyone takes their two starting pitchers. And virtually everyone these days has two starting pitchers in one of these mixed league drafts by, like, the end of round six. 
and that might mean Kershaw in one and Jose Barrios in six, or it might mean a three-four combination like we did here. But point being, like you know, I did the research and taking two starting pitchers in the top six is not really in any meaningful way putting you behind the eight ball in terms of collecting offense. So you know, it may have felt kind of out of the box and a little bit revolutionary to us, but it was really more about just getting in line with where the mainstream is these days. It seems to me that over the last couple of years, there's been a lot of tout or expert opinionating that uh, starting pitching isn't as risky as we've once perceived it to be, and that therefore you're justified in going up into those top rounds to grab your starters, especially the established guys, uh, Max Scherzer's, uh, Kershaw maybe to a little lesser extent than before, but Chris Sale's been pretty reliable, guys like that. And uh, I wonder, is that a pendulum that swings back and forth, do you think, or is that going to be the new wisdom going forward and, and anybody who doesn't avail themselves of a couple of starting pitchers in those first seven rounds is going to be the outlier? Well, you know, it, it dovetails with some other, you know, some of the other strategic changes this year. My biggest argument in favor of investing more heavily early in starting pitching is that it's gotten harder to find starting pitcher later. And by later, I don't really mean later in the draft. I mean in season. Uh, to me, the biggest distinction that I'm tracking between league formats this year is leagues that have unlimited DL spots versus leagues that have a fixed roster size. In the leagues that I was in last year with this 10-day DL revolution and starting pitchers taking vacations for hangnails and that sort of thing, um, the biggest thing that I noticed was the leagues with unlimited DL spots, you couldn't find starting pitching in season. It's just a case where I'm always, you know, literally every week just sort of robotically I troll my waiver wires looking for starting pitching that I'm interested in. Not necessarily to start guys, but matchups, matchup advantages or short term schedule advantages or guys who may have changed their performance, you know, recently that I want to speculate on. And you hit, if you troll the waiver wire for those guys every week, every few weeks you're gonna find somebody that sticks and you get some mileage out of. And that's sort of how I've traditionally managed my pitching staffs in these leagues. And last year in the leagues with unlimited DL spots Everyone was doing the same thing because everyone had three, four, five starting pitchers on the DL. As a result, I just couldn't find those guys or I didn't have any success picking up guys who helped. Uh, the point I keep making is in this league, it was either in the FSTA or in labor or in one of them. In one of these leagues last year, I actually ended up rostering Jordan Zimmerman, which, of course, is a terrible idea, but just shows you you know, what the starting pitching pool looked like. So that, that problem isn't as bad in, you know, say, an NFBC format where you've got seven fixed roster spots on your bench and you got to use those for DL guys or bench guys and you know inevitably some of the injured guys are getting thrown back into the pool or some of the two-star guys are getting thrown back into the pool after they get used but in a league like this that has unlimited DL you know having a DeGrom Carrasco combo that I at least know are likely to be fixtures in my rotation every week and reduce the number of you know middle or back-end guys that I'm churning through trying to find the right combination there. That, that to me, has real value in season, and that's the, uh, that's the benefit of locking up a couple of those guys early in my book. One of the things I've noticed and I've been thinking about how to react to, Ray, as far as starting pitching is concerned, is the really rapid decline in how many starting pitchers you can get who get innings. And most leagues nowadays have innings minimums. And I'm looking at, uh, in my league, I play an American league only with a thousand inning minimum. 
and I look around at the starting pitcher landscape, and I only see two or three guys who are even going to get 200, Corey Kluber, Chris Sale, uh, maybe one or two others, and I think to myself, boy, if I don't get one of those guys early, I mean, I play auction, but it works out to the same thing, right? I've got I've to be willing to spend on one of those sort of guaranteed 200, 210 inning guys. I'm going to be scrambling around trying to find my thousand innings, and I'm going to have to dig down for your Jordan Zimmerman's at 125 innings or guys like that at 130 apiece, and I'm going to have to roster a lot of them. And that's the part that worries me. And, and I'm wondering uh, how, when you th- look at the innings situation and how few innings get pitched, and with the with the uh, accompanying decline in per uh, per pitcher strikeouts rather than per inning strikeouts you start to have a lot of trouble figuring out where you're going to get your counting stats and, you, and your innings if you don't have Corey Kluber or, or uh, Max Scherzer or somebody like that at the top of your rotation. Yeah, and to, your, to, to that point, you know, we've seen for the ADPs or the dollar values so far, uh, you know, Scherzer and Kluber and Sale and, you know, obviously Kershaw, are, you know, the, their current draft positions are, you know, very late in the first round, which is... You know, seeing three, four pitchers go in the first round range, the ADPs is unusual, but I think the justification for it is sort of exactly what you just said. Not only are these guys supremely skilled, but in a raw counting stats, raw innings, raw strikeouts perspective, and of course the wins that come along with that, you know, if no, if these guys are getting the 200, 210 innings and nobody else is, everyone else is capping out at, you know, 180 or so, you're getting like, you know, the, the draft pick you're spending on one of those guys is essentially returning you not one starter, but like you know 120% of a starter relative to the rest of the league, and I think that becomes part of the value proposition for these guys. And I think there's, I think that is a very reasonable justification for picking for as you say prioritizing those guys or going the extra buck or whatever the um, you know, whatever the extra incentive is in your format. And at the same time, unfortunately, I had hoped that with the decline in starting pitcher innings that eventually Major League Baseball managers would start realizing they needed to get more innings out of their top relievers, uh, Andrew Miller and guys like that. But that doesn't seem to be happening. Instead, they just seem to be running more and more pitchers in general out there and and capping out those relievers at still relatively low innings. I, mean, I would love to have a situation where I could roster a decent 180 starting pitcher uh, with a 100-inning Chris Devensky or a 100-inning Andrew Miller, and between the two of them have kind of a start, two starters, one of them being a reliever. But unfortunately, that doesn't seem to be happening yet. Do you think it ever will? Yeah, I think I, I still think we're sort of on the track toward that. I think it's going to take a couple of years of combination of manager conditioning and maybe even pitcher conditioning to get there. Uh, you, you know, I think part of the problem is that the elite relievers or you know a good chunk of the elite relievers end up concentrated on the good teams and the good teams are always keeping an eye on trying to keep their guys fresh for October. I mean we saw Davinsky last October in the and in the ALCS in the World Series who was a little bit out of gas and I think that that's always the worst case scenario from the manager's point of view. So I, I'll be curious to see what we find out over a multi-year period about whether these relievers can carry the higher workload or and what the penalty is or what the recovery rate is in you know year two or year three and can they sustain it um so so that's that's certainly part of the consideration yeah you know ray when i i consider this kind of thinking uh i look at the relief pitcher and i say you know for a relief pitcher to go 100 innings in a 26 week season is only four innings a week and it's not like we're asking him to start unloading bales of cotton off of a freighter 
Yeah, it's true, and I think you know some of the. You're hitting the the right point. I think the next step is the usage pattern, and it's a very different thing for a guy to throw f- four games, four innings in one week. You know, one inning and a pop versus you know the way Davinsky was getting used early last year, and then they backed off of it. Was you know he was. I loved what they were doing in April and May. He was almost like their extra inning specialist, and if they got into a close game late, they would put him out there for the the ninth, tenth, and eleventh, and he'd go two and two thirds or something like that, and then get you know two or three days off after that, and get his four innings, four and a third innings of work in a week, but only get it in like two days, and that to me is less wear and tear. It's less up and down. It's um, you know less of a workload you know with warm ups and that sort of thing. But you know doing that you know managers get uncomfortable with that because they never like having the guy unavailable for the next day, let alone the next two or three days. So, uh, you know, I, I, I we, we've talked about this for a long time. I hope there's, uh, you know, it's clearly not a revolution, but I hope there's an evolution underway at least. And it's hard to say what step of that process we're on. Back to your draft. Uh, you had a, you would have had a chance at Noah Syndergaard for your first pick instead of DeGrom. He went a couple of picks before yours. Uh, would you have taken Syndergaard over DeGrom? Uh, not yet. I, if this draft was in March, I probably would have. But if this draft was in March, Syndergaard probably goes half a round earlier. You know, and even though he came back and made a token appearance at the end of September, I just need to see some health from him in March to invest that second round pick. Uh, I wasn't quite there yet for this January draft. I just had nightmares about him, you know, going out for his first bullpen session like this week in Florida and saying like. Oh yeah, my elbow's cranky, but it's always cranky at this time of year, and then that snowballs into a two, three, or four week thing. So, you know, one of the things about these early drafts is how you how you gauge and how you gamble on some of these uh, so, some of these questions about playing time or health or whatever in January before we have any information. And I took some gambles later on, but this Syndergaard one was a little too early for me to be getting risky. Of course, you've heard the stories about uh, Syndergaard having abandoned his weightlifting, muscle-building exercise routines in favor of stretching and flexibility. I wonder, do you consider that news or noise? You know, I think there's... I don't know if I specifically consider that news, but I do think, in general, that with the regime change in New York with uh, new pitching coach and Mickey Calloway as a pitching coach now as manager... Re, sort of re-looking at all these guys' approaches and their pitch mixes, and of course there's the uh, you know the stories about the Warth and slider that all these guys used to throw at very high velocity. I think just given the recent track record of all these guys not being healthy over the last couple of years, that um, a fresh perspective, a fresh approach, uh, an established pitching coach who obviously had a lot of success in Cleveland, uh, looking at all these guys and working with them can really only be a good thing. Um, I, I don't expect. I don't expect a staff-wide revolution here, but I wouldn't be surprised if at least a couple of these guys are healthier than we've seen from them recently. So, yeah, I think there's some news here. I agree. I think that this is a really important step forward for Noah Syndergaard in particular because he was just, you know, if you get too many muscles, the connecting tissue doesn't grow like the muscles grow and you can put a lot of strain on it and the chain is only as good as its weakest link, I guess. Uh, you took Ken Giles, the uh, Houston closer, in round eight, and that was right after a little run on closers in round seven. Again, was this a reaction or was this part of your plan? This is more a case of what, I, what we were just talking about with Syndergaard in the early drafts. Uh, Giles has still should have put him above a lot of those round seven closers and maybe not up in the, 
Jansen, Chapman, you know, Corey Kniebel range where the very first closers off the, off the board, but certainly right after those guys. But, you know, one of the things that's depressing Giles' value right now is the postseason meltdown he had. I've sort of been on record all see, all winter that I'm considering that noise and I believe in Giles' skills absent any health issues. So this was really a case of trying to get a, you know, maybe a fifth or sixth round value closer in the eighth round betting on that. Uh, the, the the recency bias of that postseason. Keep in mind that Houston didn't do anything to replace him, or you know I think they brought in Hector Rondon, but that's not exactly a strong challenger. So you know there's there's an implicit statement of support that the Astros still believe in him, and he and he's still the guy. So based on that, I will I took a shot at that here. Of course, hedging my bets, we also took Davinsky in like round twenty, so we're covered either way. You mentioned the uh, added risk of drafting so early in the in the calendar year before you know what's going on, and I saw that somebody in your draft uh, took J.D. Martinez near the end of the second round, and at the time it seemed to me like quite a risky bet, and with Martinez still unsigned now, it looks even riskier, and I'm wondering if Martinez doesn't sign until May or something like that, which is not out of the range of possibility. Maybe he's, uh, Scott Boris is going to tell him, look, wait till somebody gets hurt out there on a contender and you can uh, have the upper hand in bargaining. It would be like losing a guy to an injury for the same period of time. What did you think of that draft pick of uh, J.D. Martinez going in the second? Yeah, keeping in mind that that second round probably happened on like January 3rd or 4th or something like that. I don't think we had a real, you know, we sort of knew the offseason was moving slowly at that point, but I don't think we knew the depths of which it was going to continue through the month of January. Uh, As we get into February and March here, yeah, I would think that, Martinez's ADP is going to have to start falling for that reason. I, you know, if there was one guy who was sitting on the market or two guys who were sitting on the market, it might be what you were saying that Boris would tell them that they should hold out for the right injury or you know play or play chicken. But I don't know how these guys are going to be able to play chicken when there are so many of them unsigned that you know they're, that the, there's still so much competition for jobs and dollars that. I, it's going to be very interesting over the next couple of weeks before you know spring games start on you know the first of March or whatever it is. That I think the pressure is going to mount on these guys to you know get a deal or they're going to want to get into camps and you know that's not about Martinez specifically, but I got to believe a bunch of these guys are going to blink. But you're right if you're investing a second or third rounder, you're kind of betting whether how obstinate the guy is going to be at this point or how Boris is going to try to handle him, and that's not exactly a highly predictable psychological analysis. So I do think the risk goes up as we go forward here. I was going to ask you a couple of questions about what happens if J.D. Martinez isn't signed as we head into opening day. Most of the uh, listeners, a lot of people who play fantasy baseball will be drafting on that weekend. And uh, you might be looking at a situation where J.D. Martinez is still not signed. And that raises to me two questions. In a mixed league, do you draft him at all? Or how does it affect his, uh, his draft positioning? And in an only league in particular and in an auction league, how much do you bid on this guy? Yeah, and then, you know, you take it even one step further, you know, depending on your rules, in an only league, is he even eligible? Like, I know score sheet leagues have been, you know, score sheet usually makes player determinations, drafts are starting now, and for their AL and NL only leagues, you know, for they usually have two or a handful of guys who, at this time of year, are unsigned, and they make determinations about what league they're going to place them in based on, where they finished last year, et cetera. But there are so many of those guys this year that they've been making a lot of judgment calls to, you know, that really are important for establishing the player pool in a league. And yeah, if this stuff goes into March weekend drafts, then we've got a lot of those questions. And, you know, I, I, 
I, I would think that somewhere along the line, smart, you know, smart organizations, and I'm not saying rich organizations because I do believe everybody has money, but smart organizations are going to start start offering out, you know, one-year pillow contracts to these guys. And I wouldn't be surprised if by March 15th, a bunch of those are getting accepted by the players and somebody starts to blink. But, you know, I again, that's, you know, I don't know how the psychology of this is going to go in the players and agents' minds over the next couple of weeks. It's It's literally not something we've seen before. What I was thinking is, what happens if uh, J.D. Martinez, stay with that example, is eligible for your only league draft, and uh, or even in, in a mixed league for that matter, but you can't draft him during the draft because he's not on a roster, and a lot of leagues have that rule. Does that mean everybody in every league is going to be hoarding their full fab, waiting for this guy to sign a contract somewhere, and then uh, everybody's going to step up with a $1,000 bid, which means it'll be the whoever happens to have the slow start in a league is going to be the beneficiary because usually ties are broken by a standings order, right? Yeah, you can do that too. And I've seen, you know, I it's Tout Wars or one of the f- experts leagues has a rule where Free agents like that can't, you know, they can't be bid on, but you can take them in the reserve round. So the first, second, third pick in the reserve round order, which I think is done by a lot, has dramatic impact for that because you might be able to tuck one of these guys away there. Yeah, in tout, I think it's the winner, the previous year's winner goes first and so on down the line, which would be just another advantage for uh, the winner of the league in in all three cases for tout. Uh, I thought Ian Kinsler at the top of round 19 was a good get for uh, whoever drafted first, uh, considering Tim Anderson went two and a half rounds earlier, and I think I'd rather have Ian Kinsler considering his track record and his stolen base potential with the Angels. What did you think of that Ian Kinsler pick? Yeah, I'm a, Kinsler brings a lot to the table, and I thought that was a really good pickup for the Angels. You know, there's, you know, from a fantasy point of view, there's still, you know, premium batting average there. He's, you know, we start to worry about a little, a little bit about durability as he gets into his upper 30s, but his track record of durability is, you know, virtually unsurpassed. You know, the combination of being in the lineup every day and batting leadoff traditionally in Detroit has gotten him some massive at bat totals. That should continue in. Anaheim and you know to the extent that his mid-30s legs will support stealing bases we know that um you know Mike Socha kind of forgot about the uh you know back when the Angels were good 10-15 years ago they ran all over the place they've kind of gotten away from that in the Trout and Pujols era a little bit but they brought that back a little bit last year and you know I think that's still in Socha's DNA and Kinsler you know may have some upside there so uh you know that's a nice skill set to pick up in round 19 I totally agree with you. Uh, something else we talked about earlier was the uh, starting pitchers going early. I was a little surprised to see Clayton Kershaw going ahead of Max Scherzer. I know many touts say Scherzer should go higher because of the injury risk with Kershaw. And, and as we mentioned earlier, there's that innings question that you need to solve. And, and Kershaw, the last couple of seasons, has not been an innings provider in the way that Scherzer has. What did you think of that? Yeah, Kershaw's an interesting case. I you know the, He doesn't get the 200-plus innings that Scherzer Kluber sale get like you were saying but the ratios are so good when he's out there and you can do the math on what you get from 160 or 175 innings of Kershaw with you know 40 or 50 innings of a replacement picture pitcher and then compare that to the stat lines of Scherzer and Sale and Kluber and see where that falls you know the thing about Kershaw that I think is a little bit different this year is that even if you project him for 170 or 180 innings you know, with the injuries of the last couple of years, there was always the upside of 
well, you know, he, we'll, we'll, I'll value him at 170 or 180, but there's upside if, I, if he actually gets 200 or 210. I think the door is actually closed on him getting 200 or 210. I don't think the Dodgers will let that happen. Like, they didn't play the 10-day DL game with him last year. He got his innings total because, you know, he missed four or five starts with another flare-up of the back injury or whatever it was. But I don't think they would let him have that workload, going back to what I was saying before about having one eye on the postseason that they're going to want to keep him fresh and unless they're in some fight for their playoff lives just to get into the tournament to begin with that I would think they would take every opportunity to manage him so you've got to be sure if you're taking him in the first round that you're okay with only getting 180 innings from him because I, th- I do think the door is closed on the Kershaw five years ago who would give you a 225. Yeah, I think I'd put the over-under more like 165 or something. Between the injury risk, the Dodgers' willingness to play the DL game to, to skip starts, and uh, just the fact, as you said, they want to manage his innings. I'm sure they have uh, aspirations to return to the World Series, and Clayton Kershaw is going to be fundamental to that chase, and uh, they, they don't want to you know, run through 225 innings through uh, the end of September and then have, have him be uh, hurt as they head into the, the playoff round. I just don't see that. Uh, staying in L.A., Shohei Otani went at the end of round four in your draft. What'd you think? Yeah, I don't know what to think. <laughs> now it's you know he, it's funny because he fits right into this model too. The you know, the Angels have already announced it's going to be a six man rotation, and everything you were just saying about Kershaw fits there. I think there's a hard going to be a hard cap at 160, 170 innings for Otani, and it kind of remains to be seen how that gets distributed too. Does he get a DL vacation or do they? not give him a DL vacation because they want to use him as a bat. You know, I just, one of the curious things to me is do they take do they put him on the DL on the 10-day DL if he can't pitch for 2 weeks or is does he actually establish that his bat is valuable enough for him to for him to contribute while he's, you know, taking a quote-unquote vacation from the mound. Uh you, you know, these these newcomers I'm generally the little man on them. I'm not, I'm not going to spend a guy, a fourth round pick on a guy who we've never seen pitch on this continent before, but they're, you know, he's probably going to be really good. I, he's probably not going to end up on any of my teams though. Also, some something of an injury risk as well with Shohei Otani. I, I, I just think it's too uncertain for that high of a pick uh, also. Um, just uh, to clarify, does your league, uh, the FSTA league, uh, keep Otani as just a pitcher when you draft him? Did he have to be drafted a second time as a hitter? How did they work that? Uh, there was only one Otani in the draft pool, and I think once he gets eligible at a batting position, he will um, be able to, you can slot him as a whatever, whatever offensive position he's eligible at, whether it's DH only or if he picks up another eligibility. Um, but he, you, can, you can do that, if, if, but then you don't get the pitching stats if you put him in an offensive position. But Shohei Otani, the hitter, is going to be a different entity than Shohei the pitcher. No, it's uh, the what whoever drafted him has the has the option to play him as a hitter or a pitcher. Oh. There's only one guy in the draft pool. Oh, interesting. That sure, certainly adds to his value if he can hit at all. I guess uh, Ray, who is your favorite hitter pick in in your uh, in your rounds? Uh, for me, I think it was probably uh, Brent had a sort of a brainstorm in round 17 where we collected uh delano de shields uh it was a good value there for you know what what should be another 30 plus stolen bases from him well, that was a pick that sort of capped off our uh the live portion of our draft that we were pretty happy with that's uh you know not a uh, not, not a game changer but a skill set that really fit where we were looking for that was one we were really happy with 
Uh, Nick Castellanos is another one that we might talk about later, but I'm super high on this year. We got him in round 10, and I like that multi-position eligibility. I love the hard contact he makes, and you know, as much as Detroit's going to be a wasteland next year, he this year he should be a uh, a lone bright spot there. Yeah, Nick Castellanos is a tout favorite this year, that's for sure. Uh, which pitcher did you like? We took Ty Walker in round 16, which I think is looking pretty good uh, given the humidor announcement in Arizona this week. So that's uh, that's one where the stock might be rising a little bit since we drafted him a couple of weeks ago. Overall, Ray, what did you like about your team when you looked at it after the draft? So like I said, it was sort of a laboratory, sort of a proof of concept. And I think the biggest thing I learned here that I'm happy about is that you can build a team that meets all your offensive goals, especially in the stolen bases, without getting a Gordon, a Turner, or a Hamilton, and that you can still get to, you know, a projected target stolen base number you want and have a balance of power and speed and batting average. You know, there's trading in this league, so if you don't come out with balance, that's not the end of the world. But, you know, I I was very curious to see in practice, you know, what the stolen base pool looked like if you didn't pick up one of those three big speedsters and I think I proved that to my but to my own satisfaction at least that you can build an, a, a well-balanced offense without those guys and do you have any significant areas of concern for your for your team uh you know I think the bullpen is always dicey when you draft this early like I said you know as much as I believe in Giles there's still some risk there you know there's a reason he's undervalued or he's valued lower right now whether it proves to be undervalued or not our other closer is Doolittle who was terrific in Washington last year but always has some you know there are some health concerns there uh and you know we threw some darts at other relievers later we took Davinsky uh as I mentioned we stashed away Alex Reyes and somewhere after around 20 and we don't really know whether he's going to start to relieve or when he'll be back this year uh Drew Steckenrider is another big bullpen arm we stashed but you know I could have three or four closers out of that group or I could have zero come opening day I just don't know that's just the hazards of drafting in January I think well it will be fun to watch this team through the season proving the concept indeed and we'll be rooting for you Ray you'll be back a little later in the show we'll talk about uh, baseball HQ site first pitch forums are getting spooled up Uh, you got another draft that you just completed in labor and you'll have some uh what did I call them? Nabbers and slabbers, I think, or something like that for 2018. I'll see you in a few minutes. Thanks, PD. Ray Murphy, co-general manager of BaseballHQ.com. He will be back a little later in the show. Coming up, we have Greg Fishwick with his first cheat sheet from Baseball HQ, looking at starting pitchers. This is Baseball HQ Radio. He's sitting on 714. Here's the pitch by Downing. Swinging. There's a drive into left center field. That ball is going to be out of here. It's gone. It's 7-15. There's a new home run champion of all time, and it's Henry Aaron. The fireworks are going. Henry Aaron is coming around third. His teammates are at home plate, and listen to this crowd. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Now it's time for our first position preview of the 2018 fantasy baseball season. Here's Greg Fishwick to look at starting pitchers and relievers. Welcome to our position previews for 2018. Knowledge of position landscapes helps you make keeper decisions and provides perspective on position scarcity for your drafts and auctions. 
We'll use the universal draft grid from our 2018 baseball forecaster to see how many players are at which tier levels in mixed and only leagues. We divide players into seven tiers. Elite, Gold, Stars, Regulars, Mid-Level, Bench, and Fringe. To help you identify potential targets, we use bold print for those with reliability grades of B or better in each of three criteria. Health, playing time or experience, and consistency. In the next four weeks, we'll review outfielders, corner infielders, middle infielders, and catchers and designated hitters. Let's begin now with starting pitchers and relief pitchers. For pitchers, we add a tier at the bottom labeled below fringe. You may not need to go there in shallower leagues, and we'll recommend a way you won't need to go there even in deeper leagues. The league context can alter the landscape considerably. The Universal Draft Grid uses standard Roto categories. So, for example, if your league has quality starts instead of wins or holds as well as saves, you'll need to adjust. If you want a precise picture of individual player rankings and values specific to your leagues, use the Custom Draft Guide at BaseballHQ.com. The Custom Draft Guide accounts for keepers, roster size, categories, and every other aspect of your leagues. Of the four starting pitchers in the elite tier, the better reliability grades belong to Chris Sale and Max Scherzer rather than Clayton Kershaw and Corey Kluber. The gold tier has only two starters, and they're both in the National League. But neither Steven Strasburg nor Madison Bumgarner have their names in bold print. In the Stars tier, we have six starters evenly divided between the National League and the American League. And we find our first straight-A reliability grades with the honors going to Jacob deGrom. Zach Grenke also has his name in bold print. Of the top 12 starters, the National League has seven and the American League has five. In the next two tiers, we have 35 starters. The American League has 21 and the National League 14, bringing the American League total to 26 and the National League total to 21 of the 47 starting pitchers in the top five tiers. Of the 35 in the regulars and mid-level tiers, 14 are regulars and 21 are mid-level. The three regulars with straight-A reliability grades are Chris Archer, Carlos Martinez, and Jose Quintana. In the mid-level, it's Trevor Bauer, Jeff Samarja, and Rick Porcello. Demand will be high for those 47 starters in the top five tiers. What's your strategy? Forgo the best arms to load up with bats? Balance your pitching and hitting? Or dominate in pitching? To be competitive, you'll probably need at least one or two of the top 47. That doesn't look too difficult in mixed leagues and looks doable in AL-only leagues, but it could be tough in NL-only leagues. To be balanced, you might need three or four of the 47, and you can see that's much more of a challenge. To totally dominate, you'd have to have four or more, and that would be a monumental task. So let's look at the rest of the starting pitcher pack, and then we'll see if there's any relief coming in from the bullpen. The bench tier has 39 starting pitchers. The American League has 19 and the National League 17. As of this recording, the bench tier has three free agents remaining. Only four of the 39 have reliability grades of B or better, and they're not overly appealing. Mike Leake, Zach Davies, Tanner Roark, and Julio Tehran. This is where your risk tolerance comes into play. For example, two Alexes have two Fs each, Alex Reyes and Alex Cobb. 14 others have one F, including Lance McCullers, Charlie Morton, Patrick Corbin, and Lance Lynn. 
Too much would have to go right for you to benefit from more than a couple of the high-risk, moderate-reward players in the bench tier. If yours don't contribute from the start, remember our research shows that the lone exception to our exercise excruciating patience rule is starting pitchers. So feel free to cut bait after April. Are there any better long shots in the fringe tier? Well, no, not really. That 39 is comprised mainly of the too young, too old, and too often injured. They are evenly divided between the AL and the NL with 18 each, plus three free agents. The four with reliability grades of B or better are Michael Fires, Jason Hamill, R.A. Dickey, and Dan Straley. Two is too many from the fringe tier. The 88 starting pitchers in the below fringe tier are even longer shots. But there is more than hope to be had from relievers, and it goes beyond just the better closers. Fewer and fewer starters are accumulating over 180 innings, and more and more relievers are logging more than 60 innings. This is a good year to forego your search for sleepers among the 127 fringe and below fringe starters. Instead, especially in keeper leagues, try to aggressively target the new breed of multi-inning relievers joining Andrew Miller and Chris Davinsky. We'll get to some of them after we cover closers for those of you in saves-only leagues. There are no elite relief pitchers, but closers monopolize the next three tiers. The top two relievers are the only ones in the gold tier, Kenley Jansen in the National League and Craig Kimbrell in the American League. Jansen has the better reliability grade. There are ten more closers in the Stars tier, with five in each league. Cody Allen and Roberto Asuna have the attractive AAA reliability, while Brad Hand has straight Bs. The seven relievers in the regulars tier also are split evenly between the AL and NL, with three each and Greg Holland still a free agent. Before we get to those multi-inning men, let's summarize. There are 19 closers in the top four tier, one free agent, nine in the National League, and eight healthy in the American League thanks to Zach Britton's injured Achilles tendon. If you're in a saves-only league, you'll have to work hard to snag two standout closers. Miller and Davinsky are among the nine mid-level relievers. The American League has five and the National League has four. An interesting handcuff here would be Fernando Rodney and Addison Reed in Minnesota. If Rodney succeeds, he gets saves and Reed is the multi-inning setup man. If Rodney fails, Reed inherits the saves. In the bench tier, the American League has 16 and the National League has 9 of the 25 total. More importantly, there are 9 multi-inning men, including the American League's Dylan Batonsis, Michael Givens, Chad Green, and Mike Miner, and the National League's Archie Bradley, Carl Edwards, Tyler Lyons, and Michael Montgomery. Green, Miner, Bradley, and Montgomery all may start more than they relieve, and Montgomery is the only one in the tier with good reliability grades. In the fringe tier, there are 78 featuring two current closers in Luke Gregerson and Brandon Morrow, and seven more multi-inning men, including Joe Musgrove, Yusmero Petit, Josh Hader, Adam Warren, and Erasmo Ramirez, who has the best reliability grades of the bunch. If fewer innings of higher quality work is more valuable in your league than more innings of lower quality work, then you may be able to avoid the below fringe tier entirely by targeting multi-inning setup men. For more bargains to target, read Matthew Cedarholm's Market Pulse columns at BaseballHQ.com. Best of luck with your pitching plans and tune in next week to tour the outfield landscape. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Greg Fishwick of BaseballHQ.com. Greg Fishwick is an analyst at BaseballHQ.com, and he'll be back over the next few weeks with all the position previews from BaseballHQ.com. When we come back, part two of our interview with Ray Murphy coming up next. Stay with us on Baseball HQ Radio. One and one to Williams. Everybody quiet now here at Fenway Park after they gave him a standing ovation of two minutes. 
knowing that this is probably his last time at bat. One out, nobody on, last of the eighth inning. Jack Fisher into his windup. Here's the pitch. Williams swings, and there's a long drive to deep right. That ball is gone, and it is gone. A home run for Ted Williams in his last time at bat in the Major League. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. My pleasure to be rejoined by Ray Murphy, co-general manager of BaseballHQ.com. Ray, you ready for part two? Let's do it, Patrick. For a couple of years now, you've been one of the co-general managers of BaseballHQ.com, along with Brent Hershey. And before we get into any of the details, maybe you could say something about the site philosophy and approach so people understand what they're getting into. Sure. So our approach to breaking down the player pool and you know, analyzing a player is always based in what we call component skills analysis, which means that you know, rather than looking at, you know, for a batter, home runs, RBIs, stolen bases, the stats that we count on, we look at the underlying components of that. So, so much of it is built on from the ground up about contact rate and the player's ability to put balls in play and walk rate and the ability to get on base and take a walk. And then from there, you talk about what happens when they put the bat on the ball in terms of, their ground ball, line drive, fly ball distribution, their percentage of hard hit, soft hit, medium hit balls. You know, so much of the counting stats that we rely on in our games is built on the foundation of those, you know, subcomponents that we feel like you can learn more about a player's skills by analyzing at the subcomponent level than up at those counting stats level. The same works on the pitcher side, of course. You know, there's always, we know from theory of BABIP and Voros McCracken, there's only so much in a pitcher's control once the bat hits the ball, so we focus on walk rate, strikeout rate, strikeout to walk ratio, home run per fly ball, etc., and try to figure out what a player's true skill level is and trust that those true skills will win out over the longer term. Something else about BaseballHQ.com I've always liked, first as a consumer and uh, later on as uh, somebody who writes for the site, you know, every so often there'll be a situation where uh, some somebody will write in on, on the comments or in the forums and they'll say, Stephen Nickran says uh, this certain pitcher is a guy really worth grabbing, but David over here says he's somebody that he doesn't like or he's cautious about. Why don't you guys get your act together? And I've always thought of that as a feature rather than a bug, frankly, that uh, BaseballHQ.com does not try to get everybody marching along in lockstep, that uh, if, if I think he's a good pitcher and Stephen thinks he's bad or vice versa – then that's the way it is because we're independent thinkers and uh, it's that old adage about teach a man to fish, uh, he'll, he'll eat for a lifetime. If you just give him a fish, he eats for a day. And, and I think one of the things that uh, I really like about BaseballHQ.com is that we, we tell the subscriber, hey, you're in this with us. You know, you got to think along with us. And we see that a lot, especially in the forums where, where we get disagreements, we get really smart uh, advanced baseball thinkers calling us out on some of our decisions and and we get into those real robust conversations that I think mean better results. Yeah, that's right. And you know, the traditional way of putting that is to teach a man to fish analogy analogy or metaphor that you uh, you said there and that's certainly in our DNA and sort of the uh the the modern equivalent to that is that you know we're we're open source. We show our work. So like you said, if there's a dispute about whether we think you know, a, a projection is right, or you know, you and Stephen have a different opinion about a pitcher. The data is all right there. We can go sit there and pull apart the guy, and you know, there's no dispute about what his strikeout rate is or what his walk rate is. You know, we've got that there. We know what the BPV or XERA formula is, and you guys can sit there and debate about 
why we think he's going to be better than that or worse than that, but we're starting from a common foundation of what we believe, what we, what the guy's skills are. We're not arguing about, you know, whether his strikeout rate is quote unquote fake news or not. You know, we're, we're, we've got a common, you know, baseline and then it's just a question of how we interpret or prioritize the data. And like you said, we're not a, you know, we're not a single mind collective Borg or something. We're all independent thinkers and inevitably there will be disagreement. And we just kind of put all our work on the table and say, Okay, reader, it's your draft. It's your choice. You decide whether you believe Nick Rand or Davitt at your own draft, and go forth from there. And which is really the way it should be. I mean, if you if you think about it as a fantasy owner, if all you're doing is taking a website's recommendations and following them blindly, even if you win your league, then you're not really participating in fantasy baseball the way that I think most of our subscribers want to participate in it, which is making their own decisions. Yeah, I shouldn't pick on subscribers on the air, but I'll do it anyway. There was one guy, to your example, who I think, you know, this is several years ago now, who I think literally over the course of the season, every time he had to make the, even the most minor of roster moves, he started a thread in the forums about it. And in the end of the season, he won his league, and you know, a bunch of people said went into his final thread of the year congratulating him. And I was kind of sitting there like, you should be congratulating us. We did all the work for you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and something else I like about the site is over the years, I've seen the site be completely willing to amend its formulas to uh, account for new information that's available or for corrections in what we had been doing before. You know, it, it comes to mind a few years ago, I had a research report about uh, when we first started having access to hard contact information. And, and I thought, well, let's multiply the hard, con- hard contact percentage by the contact rate and we can come up with a metric that says either this guy's putting the bat on the ball a lot or he's hitting it hard when he does, or both, and those are the kind of guys we want. And after that report came out, uh, you and Ron Chandler said, let's start incorporating this. This is a really good idea, and I'm not blowing my own horn here. I'm saying because all of us have similar stories to tell. I think it's important that the site is willing to say, hey, we got a new, better way of doing things. We've adjusted the base performance value metric a a couple of times. Uh, The expected ERA metric's been adjusted many times. I think that's a real strength that we're not not sitting there in in 1991 and saying we figured it out. That's right, because, you know, we... We probably thought back in 1991 that we knew a lot, but you know, compared to what we know now, it's it, it, 1991 looks like the dark ages. And you know, analytically and in terms of data available and analysis, there's so much good work going on and so much data available these days that you know you can't stand still. And you, your hard contact metric is a great example of that. You know, another one is. Uh, you know, on the last couple of years on uh, the pitching side, Stephen Nickrand in- introduced sort of a you know th- set of third level indicators. You know, we had pitchers like I was saying earlier. We evaluate them by strikeout weight rate and walk rate, and then he dug a di- bit deeper as we get into actual you know pitch outcome data that you know we start now we have swinging strike rates and first pitch strike rates that are you know per pitch, not per at bat metrics that you know now allow us to confirm the underlying metric that confirms the underlying metric, you know, it's sort of a recursive thing. We go further down the rabbit hole. And like I said, there's so much data out there. We got to be a little careful of that because we can overwhelm people with data and you can get lost in, uh, lost in the sea of data out there. that doesn't necessarily mean anything, but what we try to do is keep an eye on what's emerging and as you did in your example and is what Stephen did in his example, when we latch onto something and we say, oh, there's something that can help us here, you know, then we'll introduce that. But you'll notice we don't throw 
a thousand metrics that mean nothing up on the website because people are just going to get lost in them. So we try to keep it to the ones that you know we've studied and we've researched and we know how to use them. And most importantly, we know they help paint a more full picture. And of course, now we're seeing pitcher spin rates. Uh, we're seeing uh, batters uh, batted ball launch angles and velocities. And I think a lot of that stuff is interesting, but I think the uh, jury is still out as to its overall utility until somebody figures out uh, exactly how does it apply, not just to baseball, but how does it apply to fantasy baseball? Because sometimes those two things are a little bit different. So it, what makes a good fantasy baseball player is not necessarily always what makes him a valuable player on the field. Yeah, that's right. And we're sort of, sort of still at the nexus there between using a lot of that data to retroactively explain why a player got better, which is great for determining whether or not that you know a gain or a loss might be sick, sticky or sustainable. But you know, getting to the point where those are predictive is a uh, you know is a Rubicon we sort of haven't crossed on that tier yet. Speaking of upgrading the site and being willing to make changes, what have we done this year at BaseballHQ.com to improve the product? Yeah, a couple of things I wanted to highlight. Uh, you know, one is a little thing that we've done. Uh, in the last couple of weeks that I've wanted to do for a long time is we actually dropped a bunch of uh, training videos on YouTube that explain how to use some of the tools on the site. So you can go and get a uh, get a demonstration of how to actually set every value in the custom draft guide for your league with an explanation of what each of the values mean. That's you know, something that, you know, since I run primarily our customer service email box, you know, I've sort of been tracking the common questions I get at this time of year and trying to you know get out in front of them and give people answers that they can find on the web on the website themselves so that they don't have to come in and you know ask me the question and I have to take the time to answer it so it helps me it helps the subscribers it's a nice little win uh, in terms of features and tools on the site the big one that I'm excited for this year will come on opening day uh, last year in September we finally rolled out. Uh, Eric Foramonte, one of our researchers, did a fantastic study on a new starting pitcher matchup score tool. We've had the matchup score tool on the site for a number of years, and it was pretty good, but Eric decided to go under the hood and completely re-architect how we determine a pitcher's outlook for an individual start. And he's got some real killer formulas and metrics behind it. Uh, it was one of the most complicated formulas we've ever built on the site. I think it had 21 sub-formulas or something like that. So it took a heck of a long time to acquire the data and uh, build it into something that we could render on the site. But we did that back in September and that'll be, that was sort of a pilot or a teaser back then for the last couple of weeks of the season. But we'll have that fully hot for opening day. And it has me uh, super excited for uh, lineup setting for pitchers and playing a little bit of DFS and figuring out how that can help us all uh, have a more successful and enjoyable season chasing starting pitching. And I presume, of course, we'll still have all the usual suspects out there, the uh, stuff that people rely on, like facts and flukes and the, uh, the um, daily uh, news analysis and so forth. Oh, absolutely. The, uh, you know, we're always introducing some new, some new stuff, but, uh, the, there's some, uh, you know, the tried and true stuff will be back in full force. Uh, we're virtually daily updates. Now we're running uh, a couple of new columns every day, Monday to Friday. And now that camps are open, I think this weekend, we're actually going to be running weekend content. We'll be into the seven day, a schedule, seven days a week schedule, something like 35 to 40 articles a week. Uh, right through from now until we're not taking a break until the all-star break. And then, you know, it's, there's more analysis and more writing that you can shake a stick at. The tools are hot and ready to go. I've been polishing up our projections. We are, uh, you know, 
spring training is opening this week, and we are, as they say, in the best shape of our lives. <laughs> Well, I can tell you, as I said, uh, for a long time, I've been a reader of BaseballHQ.com as well as a writer and uh, proud to be a writer, but I'm real interested to be a reader. Uh, one of the things that really says fantasy baseball is coming, Ray, is the Baseball HQ First Pitch Forums Tour, HQ experts and guests discussing the most important issues fantasy owners will be dealing with this draft season. What topics are on the board at this year's First Pitch Forums? Yeah, I'm super excited about that. We're getting the program finishing touches done this week, and we hit the road next weekend. Uh, we got five stops this year. We're doing a Midwest swing and an East Co- East Coast swing. So uh, the program is you know kind of centered on the themes we've been hitting here on this program. You know, there's the you know all the ways the game has changed and how we have to change our thinking and put aside some of our tried and true strategies because they don't work anymore. Uh, you know, we've got a nice exercise planned in the first pitch forums where we're actually going to be handing out roster sheets, almost like bingo cards, and inviting the attendees to actually build a roster round by round, pick by pick as we go through and sort of present some of the content, talking about, you know, what are some of the best permutations, Uh, you know, do you need, you know, how do you handle the dearth of stolen bases in the league, how do you handle the fact that power is everywhere, how do you handle the way starting pitchers are getting babied in the DL spike and the new roles for these relievers. You know, all the stuff we're sort of skimming here, we're rolling that together into one program with the end goal of having people go home with a roster they built or maybe a couple of rosters that they built that they can sit there and say, you know, I went down path A here, path B here, and path C here, and I think of the teams I built, the one I like is this path, so I'm going to take that path into my draft in, into my draft my actual draft in late March so that's the goal that's it's uh, a little bit of a different program it's going to be highly interactive a little more so than in prior years there's uh you know it's going to be uh you know a, a, a discussion format a debate format a um you know put a lot of it a lot of feedback from the from the uh from the audience, a little less, um, you know, player analysis, list of sleepers sort of thing. So uh, I'm excited about it. It's going to be a lot of fun. I did notice that uh, one of the topics is looking at sleepers and another one is looking at uh, rookies who might have a big impact this year, which is always really important in a lot of leagues, especially keeper leagues, because you want to get those guys while the getting's good. Uh, What are the dates, places, and speaker rosters for this year's tour? Yeah, so next weekend, uh, February 24th and 25th is the Midwest. Uh, Saturday the 24th is St. Louis. Sunday the 25th is Chicago. Uh, we will have Ron Chandler will be hosting all the events. Uh, Brent and I will be at, I think, all but one each. So the three of us will be in most locations. Uh, we've got various guests in each one. Uh, Jeff Tomich from Baseball HQ, Kyle Elfrink from SiriusXM, and Charlie Weigert from CDM Sports will be in Chicago. Uh, excuse me, that's St. Louis. In Chicago, we'll have uh, Doug Dennis, Alex Dopp, Alex Becky, and Joe Hoffer from the Baseball HQ staff. Uh, the following weekend, March 2, 3, 4 is the East Coast. Uh, Friday night is D.C., which is actually Columbia, Maryland. Uh, that's the one I'll miss. Uh, Ron Brent, Matt Cedarholm, Matt Dodge from HQ, Todd Zola from Rotowire will be on the entire East Coast. Uh, Saturday, Saturday in New York, in Westchester, New York, will be Matt Dodge, Nick Richards, Todd Zola again, Mike Podhorzer from Fangraphs. And then uh, we cap it with uh, my event on Sunday, March 4th in Boston, with Chris Olson and Sam Grant from HQ, Nick Trojanowski, Matt Dodge and Ed Hubbard, Todd Zola again. Ron will be up here. Uh, you know, it's a... Uh, 
it's a cast of thousands, a little bit, a little bit of a different audience in every spot, but much the same program with a little bit of you know individual opinion mixed in. So it's uh, you know there, there's a wealth of knowledge in, in every city. And one of the advantages of the event, it's just like First Pitch Arizona, the First Pitch Forum that we have every November down in Phoenix in affiliation with the uh, Arizona Fall League, is the chance to just sit around with people like yourself and uh, and talk with uh, other fantasy owners who are really smart and really engaged and make some connections and start some networks. Uh, it's, it's, it's more than a, a symposium where you sit there silently and take notes. It's a, it's a very active experience. Absolutely. There's, you know, on the breaks or after the event, there's, I'm always standing there talking to people about who their last keeper should be or what they should do with their next draft pick. And then the funny, the, the, the thing I always like is not when, you know, I, I'm talking to those people, but when those people are sort of standing around talking to me and then they start talking to each other and I sort of back away. And like you say, the network working is going on or people are finding connections for new owners in their league or a new league to join or just finding that they play in a similar format and exchanging ideas among themselves. It's, uh, you know, anytime you put 50, 60, 70 people all in the room who are all as passionate about something like this, you know, only good things can happen. And that's uh, certainly my experience at the Arizona Conference, you know, over the course of a weekend every November and on a smaller scale, uh, you know, with these events uh, over the next couple of weeks. They're certainly a highlight of the calendar year. And since uh, I know you used to go out to the West Coast, now you've replaced that with a larger Midwest swing. Uh, what about people who are sort of unavailable to get to the uh, to get to these events because of distance or conflicts with schedules and so forth? Yeah, it is unfortunate. There are only so many weekends in February and March, and you know we try to stay away from late March uh, because everyone's got their own drafts then, and you don't want to go too early because. You know, it's tough to drum up interest in early February and, you know, especially this year with the, uh, it seems like the way the offseason is dragging on. So, uh, yeah, we, we, cut, we cut the West Coast swing out this year, but we sort of reserved a weekend in March. Um, the weekend that would have been the West Coast is March 9th or 10th. And I can't confirm this yet, but we're really hoping to do some kind of an online program then, some sort of webinar-based thing that'll be much the same content, but finally get away from the limitation of we only have so many staff and so many weekends in March and so only so many cities that'll support the turnout that we need for the program to break even. So, you know, the web is obviously the way to get around all of those limitations and, you know, time permitting, we're going to take a good run at trying to put up an online event this year that will allow us to, uh, you know, serve that audience that is unable to get to any of the five cities we're hitting, we're hitting in person. And if somebody does want to attend one of the live events, live and in person, uh, how do they get the information, Ray? So just go to baseballhq.com and over on the right side of the homepage there, about halfway down, there's a giant logo for First Pitch Forums. Click on that and you can uh, select the event you want to go to and pre-register. It's $39 in advance and starting on the Thursday night of the event weekend, uh, we raised that to 49 instead of 39 and it's also 49 at the door if you just find out on the Saturday or Sunday morning that your afternoon is actually free and you can join us. Don't hesitate to do that if you have to. We'll be glad to have you regardless. First Pitch Forum's a lot of fun. Uh, another annual fantasy landmark raise, the Labor Draft, kind of the granddaddy of all experts' drafts, uh, has been going for uh, decades now. Uh, you had fifth pick in this 15-team mixed redraft 5x5. Five five. Uh, how did your plan differ from the slightly smaller but pretty much the same format FSTA draft we talked about earlier? 
Yeah, so this was the one where I sort of did the opposite side of the coin from what we were talking about with the FSTA draft in that I sort of predetermined early that I was going to get one of the big speedsters. And, you know, it's always important to me to bang batting average hard early in the draft and build a cushion there. Uh, that's always the way I like to go. But this time I was also prioritizing stolen bases. And if you look at the intersection of batting average and stolen bases, you know, Billy Hamilton kind of falls to the side of that because he doesn't provide uh, a plus batting average. But Gordon and Turner certainly, certainly do. So I was determined to get one of Turner and Gordon. Interestingly, I probably would have taken them both if I could. I wasn't sure I was going to get Gordon in round two. Uh, where I sat in the snake, at, you know, I was picking fifth, so my second pick was 26th or something. Uh, Turner actually went fourth in the draft, so I didn't get him, but I would have taken him fifth if he had gotten there. Uh, I did get Gordon in round two, and that sort of became the cornerstone of the stolen base strategy. So Arenado, Gordon, and Kristen Yelich were my one through three, and got me to pretty much the same point as... You know, with that batting average and broad counting stat base as going with the well-rounded Blackman, Lindor, etc. opening in the FSTA draft. But this one kind of got to the same point just with uh, different distribution of stats. Did you entertain uh, the possibility of grabbing Paul Goldschmidt or Mookie Betts considering they're not that far behind Arenado in power but will provide more bags? Yeah, you know, I think this is the third year in a row I actually have gotten Arenado in this draft. I ran a Twitter poll that I thought was pretty interesting right before the draft asking that exact question. Uh, who should I take between Goldschmidt, Betts, Arenado, and Turner? I left uh, Blackman off of it just because I thought he was going to go earlier. It turned out he didn't. But uh, I ran a poll, and it was pretty much balanced. It was Betts fin Bet finished last, but between uh, Turner and Arenado and Goldschmidt, it was almost a dead heat, which I thought was kind of interesting. I opted for Arenado just, I mean, he doesn't help the stolen base category, but that's really his only weakness. He is, you know, as reliable and as stable a four-category stud as you can find. So uh, he's treated me well the last couple of years in this draft. I, I was happy to go back there again. Yeah, I would put bets at the bottom of that pile. I love Mookie Betts, but outfielder, you know, I like in that in that early going in a draft, I like to start grabbing up my infielders, making sure I'm solid there because, there's, as we know, there's t tons of outfielders to choose from, not of Mookie Betts' caliber, but then the uh, the question becomes, you know, at, in round nine, are you going to get a better outfielder or a better second baseman? And at that point, uh, your chances are pretty good of getting an outfielder. Yeah, I think that's right. I, I, I've gotten away a little bit from worrying about positional scarcity that much, but um, you know, I, I've gotten – I don't think infielders are all that much harder to find than outfielders, but I do worry about balance. It was in this draft that I think I ended up uh, – I actually took three third basemen fairly early. I took Arenado and Justin Turner – uh, in round five, and then I came back with Castellanos in round seven. Castellanos is outfield eligible, so that works. But you know that was just uh, you know filling even a corner infield spot that early, and having three guys who were third base eligible in seven rounds was was a little bit odd for me. I usually want to sort of spray the picks around the uh, the roster a little more evenly than that. On the other hand, you put a lot of pressure on your competitors if you take three solid third basemen because there's only so many to go around, and after a while, guys start looking around and, and overdrafting the third basemen who are left, perhaps. Yeah, it's absolutely true, and that was a big part of why I was willing to take both Turner and Gordon if I could have because I thought that would have been a fascinating 
squeeze on the rest of the pool as far as everyone else having to figure out what they wanted to do with stolen bases. Plus, it's a trading league, so inevitably, if I'd taken Turner and Gordon 1-2, I probably would have finished the draft light on power, but come May or June, I probably could have cra- could have cashed in one of those guys for a, uh, you know, for, for a big bopper. You mentioned having drafted Nick Castellanos at uh, both drafts. Any other players you doubled down on? Yeah, there were a few. Uh, I mentioned Doolittle earlier. We got him in both drafts as one of our closers, uh, so hopefully his elbow stays attached to his body. Uh, Mike Zanino was another one, mostly because he fits that profile of if you bang the batting average early and want to convert batting average cushion into power later, he's a super... Uh, ideal way of doing that at the catcher position and getting a leg up on uh, on power there. I'm scanning down the rest of the list. There were probably a couple of others. Scott Schebler, again, same profile that you know, light batting average, heavy power. So if you you know if you start out the same way, you know, sort of end up targeting the same class of end gamers. And we did have some overlap there with that. Lonnie Chisinau was another one, I believe. I saw you drafted uh, in labor two Blue Jays pitchers, Marcus Stroman and Aaron Sanchez. Was that just the way things fell, or do you have some uh, insight in Toronto, into Toronto's chances to do well for starting pitchers? I, I think it was more about the individuals. There is a global element to it. Individually, I like Stroman because, you know, talking about that uh, innings pitched problem earlier, he doesn't have the a great K per nine and some of the top starting pitchers do, but he's a guy who's so reliable and so durable that he might take a run at 200 innings, and if his 200 innings is 160 strikeouts or something like that, the raw strikeout total will help you more in the scoring categories than the K per nine might have suggested. Um, Sanchez, I'm just hoping that he's figured out the blister problem and gets back to being the guy that we thought he was going to be last year. But the global element to that, to your question, is really that I was a little surprised when I was updating our ballpark factors this winter that you know with all the various changes in ballparks and the uh the run scoring environment in, in baseball Tor- toronto has be- became one of the better pitcher parks in the al last year uh which surprised me and you know that's not to say the al east isn't still a, a tough a tough place to pitch for these guys but that you know in the past i might have avoided toronto pitchers because the perception is that you know Rogers Center is a launching pad, and they got to go play all their road games in Boston and New York, and there's just not a lot of shelter for them there. But that's uh, that's maybe a little less true than years past. So that's uh, one of the reasons I was a little willing to take a little bit of a longer look at, at those two Toronto guys. Something else for uh, people considering Toronto starters to consider is uh, they uh, not Stroman, but some of the others have a fly ball bent. And uh, last year that wasn't so good because you had Jose Bautista in in right field and you had uh, some combination of Steve Pierce and Ezekiel Carrera in left. Uh, none of them is going to make anybody forget Paul Blair in the uh, glove department. They've upgraded in that way uh, quite a little bit in the offseason. Not big, huge signings, but definitely defensive upgrades. Uh, Randall Grichuk, I think, is going to be a big improvement. So there might be another reason to look at Toronto pitchers as well. Uh, four starting pitchers went in round one, Ray and Labor, and Kershaw went number three overall. Any either of those things surprise you much? Yeah, Kershaw three surprised me, but <clears throat> I do think it's been pretty proven that you, you know, with these first with these starting pitchers in the first round, you can still build a competitive offense if you take those guys, especially with the uh, less so with Kershaw in three than with Scherzer, Sale, Kluber, late in the first round. You get an opportunity to bang the 
you know, a first-round caliber hitter with those guys. And I'm looking at that draft board right now, and Scherzer, Sale, and Kluber got paired with Freeman, Votto, and Bryant. And those are really three first-round quality hitters added late in the second round, late early in the second round. So, you know, if you're getting a first-round bat to go with the starter and you want to think of in your head as the second-round pick being the starter, hey, that's fine. That's uh, somebody else took Manny Machado in the first round and then Madison Bumgarner in the second you know, those combos all add up to roughly the same thing. And which, which order the starting pitcher went, whether it was pick 11 or pick 19, you know, it doesn't matter as much when the highly reliable, highly productive, you know, multi-category contributing bat comes along with the pitcher. All right, Ray, uh, before the season, we ask our experts to talk about players to target and avoid based on their expected draft slots, expected prices versus the risks of injury or underperformance. Uh, until I come up with some snazzier name, I'll call these uh, guys we want guys for nabbing and the other guys guys for slabbing, as in the morgue. Uh, that may not be uh, sufficiently uh, <laughs> morbid for you. I don't know what will be. Uh, let's start with some guys you think should be interesting to our listeners. Guys for nabbing in the American League. How about a hitter? How about a hitter? Well, we talked about Castellanos a couple of times, so let me uh, let's pivot to somebody else. I think uh, a guy who's been a little under undervalued this year, or there's a little recency bias hurting him, is uh, Rutten Odor uh, in Texas. Who, you know, he's got the you know sort of the worst of all possible seasons last year, and then not only was he bad, but he was a batting average disaster. And maybe this is just my personal bias, but it seems to me like those guys who are the batting average disasters, the bad taste tends to linger in people's mouths for a little longer than somebody who just got hurt or something like that. So he seems like he's fallen a little bit too far down the draft board this year, and he's somebody that uh, I might be willing to speculate on this year. How about a hitter in the National League? Well, in these early drafts, you know, there's always the playing time questions. We talked about that a little bit earlier. Guys who don't necessarily have a path to a job. And one of these guys who's caught my eye is... Uh, Chris Owings in Arizona, who seems like right now maybe he's falling a little bit too far down the draft board because it looks like he's the he's the tenth man and the Drury's going to play second and now Marte's going to play short and Owings can fit into the outfield a little bit, but the outfield is crowded. So I'm willing to bet that he fits into he that he'll find a job somewhere along the way and he'll get his 450 at bats. And his skills were pretty good before he got hurt last year. He was another one of these guys who had some established speed skills but was mixed in a little bit of surprising power and that could be sustainable and he may you know he also has the, the ability to maybe just hit his way into the lineup ahead of all these other guys over to the mound who's an american league pitcher to nab uh, you know we talked about Syndergaard earlier and how i wasn't willing to take the risk on him uh until he established his health a little bit more in the second round I, I'll, I'll flip to the other side of that argument and i'll put in a plug for David Price. The difference being, you know, he's got a lot of the same health questions as Syndergaard. Uh, you know, he was pitching out of the bullpen in the playoffs last year, uh, ended the year healthy, but, you know, obviously it was mostly a lost season for him. But the difference between him and Syndergaard for me is the price, uh, pun intended. Uh, you know, David's ADP is somewhere down around round seven or round eight compared to Syndergaard in round two. And, you know, given the similarity that they're both coming off, you know, lost seasons and health problems and need to establish themselves, but have ace level upside if they are healthy i will i'm not quite willing to spend the second rounder on that bet but i'm willing to spend the eighth rounder on it you live up in boston has there been any news reliable news that david price has made any adjustments or changes to his training routine or his mechanics or anything like that 
Yeah, not mechanical, but he said he had a had a normal off season, and he's you know his throwing so far has gone well, and he feels great. And you know there are some off field aspects to this too. Not that he has you know n- n- not you know personal related to him, but he has uh, not been the most popular figure in Boston since he signed. And there's a local feeling that you know obviously he hasn't delivered on the giant contract, and that you know we got what we paid for in sale, but haven't gotten what we paid for in price. And he had a run in with David Eckersley last season, and you know has sort of been you know. Uh, fighting a little bit of a world with the media, but uh, so we'll have to see how some of that plays out. But I, I'm getting the impression just from some very early comments that he might be uh, he might be willing to he might, might be looking to turn over a new leaf this year. So uh, we'll see how all that plays out. But I am uh, I'm intrigued by what I see so far. Could be kind of a Walmart rotation led by sale price. <laughs> exactly. In the National League, how about a pitcher to nab? Brandon Woodruff's a good one. Uh, end gamer who I took in labor, uh, you know. That Milwaukee rotation, they've been talking a lot about spending some money to upgrade it and haven't really done it, but that offense is going to be really good. And Woodruff showed some skills last year and in a place where, uh, you know, we've, again, we've talked about all those 150, 160 inning pitchers. He might be one of those guys, but he could also, you know, pile up the strikeouts in a fairly small sample size. So you might get 140 innings and 150 strikeouts from him. And if he really breaks out and gets up to the 175 innings, there could be a real profit there. So that's uh, that's an endgame NLR who I like. Ray Murphy's guys for nabbing, Rugnet Odor of Texas, Chris Owings of Arizona, David Price of Boston, and Brandon Woodruff of Milwaukee. Let's move over to the guys for slabbing. Ray, guys, you don't think listeners should be really that interested in for various reasons. Again, we'll start in the American League and a hitter. I'm going to go with Stephen Piscotty here. Uh, I think by HQ projections, we're kind of low man on him already, so this might be baked baked into our data already but I'm, I'm seeing other places that are a lot higher on him and certainly he had a better year two or three years ago in st louis and it's been well documented that his uh some of his lost season last year was related to some family issues his mother's very sick it's set and that was a distraction that's certainly understandable and he got traded back to oakland this year uh some of the reason for that is supposed to be so he could be with his mother and that you know there seems to be this narrative that somehow that's going to lift all the concerns and he's going to get back to being who he was but uh, you know it's great that he's closer to his mother but you know it's it, Oakland's not a great place for him to go for that skill set, and I think people who are just expecting things to snap back at the place for him might be a little disappointed. I'm willing to roster him, but you know, at a discount relative to somebody who's willing to pay for his, I guess it's 2016 all over again. I, I, I can't get him right back to that level yet. In the National League, how about a hitter to slab? I don't know if he's a National Leaguer yet, but how about I go with Eric Hosmer? I'm a little worried about him and... He seems like you know San Diego was interested. I don't know if the pillow contract is going to materialize for him there, or if he'll end up in Kansas City or somewhere else. But you know, we talk about you know a more general point. We were talking about all these free agents earlier, and I've seen a lot of chatter from you know on Twitter from people who talk to players or even players' wives, and what the this disruption is for this late season signings and what happens to these guys that they haven't figured out where they're going to live and they didn't secure a spring training housing because they don't know where they're going and they don't know if they're going to Florida and Arizona and if for some of these players and I don't necessarily know if Hosmer's going to be one of them I wonder if 
the uncertainty is going to take a toll and lead to a slow start. And these guys, especially if they don't get into camp soon, as you were talking about earlier, Patrick, the deeper this goes into March or even the season, you know, we saw a few players, uh, you know, what is it, four or five years ago now where guys like uh, Stephen Drew and Kenji Morales held out over the, uh, you know, didn't sign a contract until after their arbitration offer expired. And they missed, a se- they missed the first month of the season or so. And they just never got going. So to your point, earlier about whether some of these guys hold out or Boris gets in the way for an injury or whatever, some of them, you know, it, you know, it, there could be downstream effects even after they get into camp and into the lineup. Over to the mound, how about a pitcher in the American League that goes on your slab? Charlie Morton. I'm going to, you know, he's going to have, seems to have a lot of buzz. This is a guy who was an end gamer if he got drafted at all last year. Obviously had a great pick, great season and postseason in Houston. Uh, and there's some real skills there. He's not the same pitcher he was five, ten years ago. That's well documented, the journey he went through. But there are also some legitimate durability questions there. And as good as he looked in October, we've seen before that he can look good for a month at a time. But the, you know, the big, the big chasm for him is tr- turning one good month or two good months into six good months, and we've never really seen that from him. So I'm going to remain a little skeptical there. I think he's creeping up a little too far up the draft boards for me. And finally, Ray, a pitcher in the National League? Uh, sort of the same theme. Let me go with Brandon Morrow. You know, the Cubs are a smart organization, and they just gave him a lot of money, and that certainly counts for something, and they've installed him as Wade Davis's successor in the bullpen race. But... You know, that's another guy who we've never seen a track record of health. And, you know, much as the Cubs did with Wade Davis last year, they could just really baby Morrow in the closer role throughout the season and only use him for one inning at a time and not use him in back-to-back days for a while and give him some days off. But that might all lead to his save total being a little less than what people are hoping for. He may not be a 40-save guy. He may not be able to get out to the mound that often, or they may not actually need to push him that hard. So, you know, I one of the things I'm watching in the March and early, even early in the season is trying to figure out who the number two guy is in that pen, whether it's Steve Sishik or Carl Edwards Jr. or Pedro Strop. But I wouldn't be surprised if there are at least 10 or 15 saves that go from Morrow off to one of those other guys. So uh, I'm going to be trying to figure out who's most likely to, to pick up those scraps in the Cubs bullpen. Ray Murphy's guys for slabbing Stephen Biscotti of Oakland, Eric Hosmer, a free agent, Charlie Morton of Houston, and Brandon Morrow of the Cubs. Ray, it's been great as usual. Where can listeners read more from Ray Murphy? So uh, you can find me in the general manager's office column at Baseball HQ. I'll I'll have a column up on Friday about that labor draft we were just talking about. You can always check in on me at Twitter at RayHQ. And if all else fails, you can almost always find me in the Baseball HQ subscriber forums. All right, Ray, thanks a million for helping us out for the first show of 2018. I'll have you on later again in the year, of course. Uh, Good luck with your teams, and uh, look forward to seeing you. Thanks as always, Petey. Ray Murphy is the co-general manager of BaseballHQ.com, a regular writer at the site, and of course he'll be part of that big First Pitch Forums tour a little later this month. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Thursday, February 15th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number one of the 2018 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guests for this Friday edition of the show from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our feature interview guest was Ray Murphy, the co-general manager of BaseballHQ.com, a fine baseball analyst and writer, and a terrific fantasy player. Also, analyst Greg Fishwick, who had the first installment of his cheat sheet player analysis. 
I'm Patrick Davitt, the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. And remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also subscribe to my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt. Please feel free to send us a message there or on our email address, bhqradio, all one word, at gmail.com. You'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. More importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating. It really does help us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next Thursday when our feature guest expert will be a favorite of the show and a good friend, the wise guy of fantasy baseball, Gene McCaffrey. We'll also start adding back all the features and commentary you've come to know here on our show, National and American League News, Minor League Minute, Playing Time, Frequent Flyer, and Master Notes. All that goodness plus Gene McCaffrey on the next edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. And so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.